Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Charles Kellogg, an American naturalist, said in 1920, there can be no life without soil and no soil without life. And this episode of 050 explores how farming practices in the last 50 years have rapidly depleted the quality of soil and its ability to grow crops and store carbon. Regenerative agriculture is a way of farming that works with nature rather than against it, harnessing the chemical and biological power of soil, preserving biodiversity and increasing the soil's ability to store carbon. To find out how we can do this and why we should all care about our soil and how we farm, I am delighted to welcome Gina Patterson, CEO of Soil Heroes, to the show. Welcome to Zero Five O, Gina. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's uh, an honour and a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Brilliant. Well, I hope I've managed to do the massive subject of regenerative farming a little bit of justice in the introduction there. I very much doubt it, but you're here to help us with all of our questions. So let's dive straight in. What is this brown stuff on the planet called soil? And why is it important to how we live, farming, what we grow? and the climate crisis? Simple warm-up question there, basically everything about the podcast in one question. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the point really, isn't it? Is that actually soil is so completely holistic and hits at so many levels and brings so many answers. So, you know, where, where to start? Yes, the dirt beneath our feet. That's basically how we've treated our soils for years now. I think it's fair to say that post-war, there has been a different mindset of producing as much as possible, as cheaply as possible. And what we haven't recognized is that soil is the stuff of life. And to your question, you know, what is soil and why is it important? Soil grows everything that we eat. You know the old adage of you are what you eat. Well, what you put into the soil is essentially what you're putting into your body. So at one very basic fundamental level, soil is human health and how you look after your soil is going to affect how you look after your population, how you look after your family, your own body. At another level, soil is enormously complex. If you tell me, Bruce, that you understand everything about nature, then I'm just not ever going to believe you. (laughs) Not in a million Sundays, because nobody does. Not even David Attenborough, I don't think. And he's my great hero. So, no, he, I think he would say that if we understand, maybe in David Attenborough's case, maybe 60%, for the rest of us a bit less, then we're already doing a pretty good job. So, soil is complex. Soil is structure, which holds water, which prevents flooding, which means you have sufficient resources to keep your crop naturally irrigated. So, We don't think of it like that, but structure is really essential when you talk about some of the climate problems we face. And of course, when you grow things in soil, you are drawing down greenhouse gases. And carbon is seen as the big enemy. And actually, carbon is like this super booster for soil health. 
So to me, it comes down to understanding and the lens that you look through. You either see soil as, like you said, brown stuff beneath our feet, or you see it as the richness of life that feeds us and makes the world go round. And interestingly as well, when I was sort of preparing for the podcast, you sort of think, oh, soil farmers food. But actually, there's a whole load of other things that we're getting from the land as well. We're getting building materials through forests. We're getting pharmaceuticals. We're getting cotton for people out there wearing a cotton shirt or t-shirt. So it seems to be a forgotten element of, we very much think about being a sort of industrialized, particularly in the West, an industrialized species, but actually the agrarian element of what we are is, is still very strong. It's really simple to summarize. It's, it's food, fuel, and fiber. So it's what you eat, it's what you wear, yeah. <laughs> and it's how you get around. Yeah. So it, it is really core and, and essential to how we function as human beings. I can honestly say in 25 years of working life and let's say 40 years of conscious being, depending on what age you might argue with me that that, that came about, it is the single most holistic, common sense, all hitting, win-win, beautiful solution to so many of our global problems. Where have we gone wrong? So we sort of say that, you know, since the war, the industrialization of farming, and we didn't really sort of understand soil, or we used to understand soil, and we don't anymore. But what, what changed post-war that has meant that we've gone in the wrong direction with our soil? I think it's a number of things. I think one of the problems is that we have the wrong focus, that we think of quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. So, and we think of, of what's the cheapest that I can buy rather than am I paying for something that has been well produced that is good for me. So I think there's also, a the, like as I say, I mean, I always come back to, in the end, it's about the lens you look through. It's about the mentality, about the intention. So certainly that, I mean, there was a, a fair challenge ahead, make sure that we can produce enough food for people. In reality, you actually need complexity and diversity in your diet rather than lots of empty calories so i think that's where we have in the push for productivity forgotten and become disconnected from nature it's just really simple we have become urbanized and we've lost that that core understanding and 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 we we are an extent we are nature we're not even an extension of nature just we are nature <laughs> but somehow we have have moved away from that 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 basis and uh, I, I think that's uh, quite a fundamental starting point of the problem and is it simply that we just basically we're using soil as a medium to grow roots in and we're just throwing loads of petrochemical derived fertilizers to try and sort of shortcut have we oversimplified what soil does? And we just think it's like a growing medium that we can pump fertilizers at to grow stuff. Yeah, I think it's uh, because because there's no one component of soil that you can talk about in isolation. So, for example, you can say, well, we need to draw carbon down out of the atmosphere. And so if we plant, have more green cover, so we grow stuff in soil, it's going to solve that problem. That's not, that alone isn't going to... Uh, planting cover crops alone isn't going to make that happen because you need the whole soil cycle 
to function, which means you need minerals, you need microbiology to be happening, and you need organic matter. And one will affect the other. And so some carbon you draw into the ground gets gobbled up by certain crops. Other crops will actually draw down more nitrogen. So it's it's actually very rich and diverse, the whole cycle that happens in, in restoring soil health. And when you pour chemicals over it, you're just destroying the microbiology, the natural enemies that are in the soil, and believing that humans can create a better solution than nature herself. I don't think we even have that dialogue in our head that actually, if I, you know, it's, 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 it's great. I can kill all the weeds. I can spray with chemicals rather than realizing, define a weed. It's a plant in the wrong place. So actually, could I approach this from a different way where I allow nature to figure out the answer? Because in the end, nature is stronger than us, is bigger than us. And that's why we are all in, in chaos about how can we combat climate change? Because nature is more powerful. And it is are we uh, sort of going back to your point about not understanding nature. I mean, I sort of when you talk there about the soil cycle and the different components of it, you know, we all spent ages le- learning the um, water cycle in geography and biology at school. I don't ever recall being taught about the <laughs> soil cycle. And there's just even at a very fundamental level, it's very much a, an otherly uh, sort of substance that's totally ignored. Yeah, and that's very true even in farming. So one of the one of the things uh, with the, the, the company that I'm running, we're busy with, is is enabling farmers to move away from the screens, which is now the most common way of farming, and out of the tractors and back into the fields to have you dug a hole and seen how many worms you have? Have you measured the length of your roots? Have you smelt it? Have you have you crumbled it in your fingers? It sounds really, you know, <laughs> it sounds really basic. It sounds like stuff we would do on a school trip for however many years ago, if we had had, like you say, instead of the water cycle, we'd also had the soil cycle in our geography lessons. We'd gone out into the field and we'd have done basic stuff that kids could do. That's the point. It's not even just what kids can do. It's obvious. It's it's human. So you don't need a science kit to figure out if you've got healthy soil. Is that right? Well, that's a bit provocative, of course. <laughs> um, uh, yes and no, or no and yes, let's say. At one level, a farmer will always know what's going well or not going well on their fields. And they'll see very productive areas and less productive parts of their, their plots. The point is that there are some basic measures that one can take that will give you an indication already of whether the soil is happy or not at a very kind of meta level. And that's the starting point to changing your mindset to thinking, how can I do best? by my soil to then really understand what's happening in the soil of course you need to do analyses and there's a whole range of things that that one can do there are expensive lab tests that can be taken of soil samples the essential thing and this is one of uh, our big drives is that we must see it in its full complexity so farmers with the current rush for carbon let's call it are not just thinking about how can I sequester carbon and sell credits, but rather what's the iris scan, the analysis of the whole of my soil health, and how can I improve it overall? So yes, of course, you need those more in-depth analyses. And I am not a soil expert by background, so I'm the wrong person to go and ask the next question. <laughs> but uh, yeah. One, one last question before we get on to soil heroes and the solutions. 
there's headlines around saying we've got 60 harvests left. And I think there's some debate about if that's true or not. And it's quite a sort of general sweeping generalization if we're talking about the whole planet, because I'm assuming some areas where soil health is better than others. Uh, do you have a view on that? Are we running out of time that quickly? Or is it sort of going to take a bit longer if we didn't do anything? You know, is it 60 or is it 70 harvest? I think that's the wrong discussion to have. I mean, it's a great question, but is that for me, it's, it's the wrong dialogue insofar as what will future generations depend on? Are we making now the choices and taking the actions that are going to lead to a vibrant, healthy, thriving world in the future? And what we do know is that when you plow, you are destroying the topsoil. You're taking away all the nutrients that have been built up in the soil. You're le- releasing gases into the atmosphere that could otherwise be stored in the soil. You are not having positive action. You are negatively affecting the planet as well as your soil. We know already that it has a very detrimental effect. You only need to look at Spain and how incredibly degraded some parts of land are, and they have, you know, facing water issues. If you think about in South Africa, where they hit, they call it day zero of not having any water running through their taps anymore. The point is what we do to soil completely affects our water supplies and our ability to grow nutritious. And that's also the point is we might end up being able to produce enough so-called visible food, but it might have zero nutrition value. So we're actually going to be incredibly unhealthy in in the future and not resilient. So yes, I think that I, I am pessimistic at some level. There is a very serious problem that if we don't change the way that we farm our food, we are heading for a deadline that is sooner than we might care to think. At the same time, I'm very optimistic because we now know what the solution is and that it, because there are demands from so many parts of our lives, it's not just about greenhouse gas, or just about nutrition, just about water. It's all of that, that it's inexcusable not to make the change. Perfect. It's almost like we rehearsed this. You've brought us onto the change. So the solution, the solution <laughs> is regenerative farming, which soil heroes have a key part to play in there. So over to you, Gina. Do you want to tell us what soil heroes does or uh, regenerative farming or all, all, all in one? What's the solution? Soil heroes, we are regenerating supply chains. We're enabling farmers and companies to meet each other and together to transform how they do business. So for a farmer, that means changing the practices that you apply in your farming, moving away from plowing, ensuring you have green cover all year round. There's a a, a whole range of, of different things that you can do differently in the way that you farm that will bring nature into your practices, adding biodiversity lanes, for example. Companies are, you know, with... It's no surprise, we've just popped out of COP and there's all the pledges being made, massive demand to become net zero. How on earth does a company go about doing that? Being able to link with a farmer and directly pay the farmer for positive impact. So what we do at Soil Heroes is measure the change that comes about in the soil as a result of a farmer changing their practices. So you can tell me, Bruce, that you're going to plant 100 hectares of cover crops and we will check and we will measure how much carbon that has sequestered and then enable a company to be able to pay for that. The reason we talk about it as regenerating supply chains is because 
first and foremost, we're working with companies who have farmers within their direct supply chains and where they looking to outside of that supply chain to balance their footprint. We can match them with farmers that in time may well actually create the regenerative sourcing that that company wants in the future. So regardless of whether it's within the company or out of the company, it's still with the mindset of let's build regenerative sources. Which is really interesting, actually, because it's sort of getting farmers involved in that entire supply chain thinking rather than just I'm here and I am producing a commodity that's going to potentially end up on a on a shipping container somewhere and it becomes a globally traded commodity. It's about understanding that entire supply chain. And I was talking to Tom on the podcast, an episode that's gone out already from Honest Burgers, and he said one of the interesting things was when he went to find farmers who were growing beef in a regenerative way is that they quite often weren't eating their own produce because they were producing produce that had to then go into a really complicated supply chain. And they never ate their own they never ate their own produce because that's how the system was set up. Yeah, and doesn't that just tell you there's something fundamentally wrong there? If instinctively we we know that's wrong, it, it must be changed. And Soil Heroes, I was very interested. You're based in Holland and it was set up by Dutch farmers, which is intriguing because the Netherlands is the most productive land in the world and I think the second largest exporter of agricultural product after the USA, and I've had no idea how, how much bigger America is, how much more farmland it has than Holland. But um, quite intriguing that regenerative farming and soil heroes, regenerative supply chains is coming out of the Netherlands, which has really adopted modern farming practices and the science of farming and horticulture and, and producing a huge amount of food from much smaller area of land. And is that why did that occur? Are the Netherlands ahead with the problem because they've been doing this so intensively for so long? No. <laughs> Actually, what's very interesting is discovering how many farmers in the UK are already regenerative and realizing how far ahead the UK is. It's just the farmers haven't been connected. And that speaks to, to the point that you're asking. The clompers are unusual in the Netherlands. They are not typical of the new way of Dutch farming. Absolutely not. When they have wildflower lanes, I think their neighbours wonder if they've gone totally potty. Like, what are you doing allowing all this? You know, I might think they're beautiful, but frankly, that isn't the crisp, clear-cut shape of a field that it's supposed to be and that we see in all the, all the pictures because Dutch land, I mean, it's a tiny country and it's extremely expensive. And that's kind of the point. If we can prove in the most industrialized country in terms of farming, that actually regenerative farming is going to end up being a better business case for the farmer, as well as all these other good, beautiful things for society and for our future generations and whatever. For the farmer, day in, day out, it will end up being a better experience and more resilient in terms of the yields that they will, will garner and have a better business case. If we can prove it here, then it's a total no-brainer everywhere. Yeah. And I get the inputs are lower on a regenerative farm. Are the outputs therefore lower? And do we need to have a sort of a re-adjustment of our expectations on yield from regenerative farming? Or can we get the yields to be a similar level with the sort of lower inputs? It's not about yields. We have to stop thinking Instead, it's thinking, what's the quality of the level of nutrition this plot has produced? Wouldn't that be just an amazingly different conversation? 
Absolutely. I mean, and, and again, it's sort of the t- total lack of understanding. So we, we'll end up with a potentially different yield, but we'll have a much higher nutritional value of those. And fundamentally, we're looking for a nutritional value. We're not just looking for massive watery carrots. Well, just to say to that, because there's also in this research that is underway at the moment, we're exploring the relationship between the level of nutrients in the soil and the crops and how that relates, indicates all the other things that are happening in the soil. Because in the end, if we have one field that is of a much higher level of nutrient density, arguably, and this is what we're seeking to prove, it's also then drawn down more carbon. It has changed or created the structure within the soil to hold more water. I often say sweet water. And what I mean by that is what eventually is drinking water, so rainwater, that actually if you are doing right by the level of nutrient density, you are doing right by everything else. And so then you know that you have restored your soil health, which is going to help with stabilizing climate disasters. It's going to get gases out of the atmosphere and so on. We have this brilliant system then. So just looking at um, the health of soil, we have this brilliant system in the UK, and I'm sure it's in the Netherlands as well, where we overproduce food. We have too much food that we waste it because we do things like buy one, get one free. Then we throw it away. Then the council spend a lot of money collecting it. Then we put it into anaerobic digesters and we take methane, we produce methane, that goes to heat homes or whatever. And then there's the digestate, which is left, which is then spread on the land. Is that a good soil additive? Does it help? Is it actually pretty useless? Or from a regenerative perspective, is that additive a good thing? It's hard to say because in certain circumstances, it might be. The best thing you can do is to feed the soil with what's grown in the soil and what's local to it. And so ideally, a farmer is creating its own, for example, its own biofertilizers from local surroundings. You can grow crops in the winter that are for feeding the soil for the next year round. I think the important thing is is understanding what does your soil need? What is the most local and natural product that you can source to feed the soil that it needs and they've been used in different ways so they've been exhausted of one aspect or another so it's very dependent there is one other point Bruce I wanted to just come back on which is that regenerative farming doesn't necessarily mean less yield and I think there's this big misconception that if we grow with nature we're going to to lose how much the field produces so yes the focus must be on on the level of you know how how nutritious the, the food if it's food that's being grown And at the same time, we have examples where the yield is actually increased because by introducing biodiversity, you're boosting the soil, you're getting the cycle going around, and actually the soil is really happy and happy soil is going to produce more. So we have to really combat that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also there's this, because I noticed quite a lot of old farmers who are quite stuck in their way, and there's also this notion of going, it's going to be different. It might be, let's take that as an example, a, a lower yield, but it won't be as low a yield as if there's no water in the soil, because then you get a zero, <laughs> you get a zero yield. So it's almost a comparison of what's going to come in the future, rather than maybe what happened in the past as well. So that's getting me to my other question, which is, if we move across the planet to regenerative farming, will it feed the 10 billion people that we're at the United Nations are saying we're going to be at nine or 10 billion people by the end of the century. Is it going to be enough to feed everybody? At some level, answering such a direct question with a direct answer means, you know, am I going down in history as the woman who said yes? I mean, (laughs) you know, that's a big responsibility to answer with definitively. 
I don't have a crystal ball. However, what's clear is that degraded soils aren't going to produce anything in the end. And when we restore soils worldwide, as you say, there's also this massive food waste problem. We already can feed that number of people. There is no discussion around it. It's about how it's distributed. And that's why if we can move to more vertical, short chain, short supply chains and ensure that degraded land is instead regenerated, then there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be able to or much more clearly can't. And it's back to that issue of the supply chain needs to be part of this regeneration as well as the soil under our feet. So absolutely fascinating subject. I mean, it's such a huge subject as well and um, so many things to talk about. But Gina, how did you personally get into this whole area of, well, the environment, regenerative agriculture? What's your story? (laughs) Well, it's a bit of a convoluted one at some level, although I realise looking back, quite interesting when you have to summarize your 20 odd years of of working life and suddenly to you it makes total sense even if it can look quite squiggle wiggle this way and that i mean from a very early age i guess i was very sensitized you could say i mean david attenborough is my complete hero my favorite magazine was the national geographic when i left university i was very fortunate to be a graduate trainee with unilever and Whilst I was working for Unilever, realized that, yeah, they were putting in place the Marine Stewardship Council. And rightly so at the time, very, very proud of the work that was being done there. What it actually did for me is to expose the fact that there was this massive problem and that we were simply finding sticking plasters effectively in terms of really fundamentally addressing how we treat our planet. So I actually quit my whole shiny career future with Unilever. I actually quit overnight and went to work for an environmental charity. So I think the indications were clearly already there, kind of <laughs> combination of business and business and, and nature. You got rid of your uh, career selling uh, tins of tuna and fish fingers early on. Yeah, but it was quite it was quite a thing because, you know, I was offered, you, you get paid a lot of money because you're young and you get to play with big brands. I mean, I was working on uh, Magnum ice cream, which was very sexy and cool at the time. And a beautiful company in terms of the training that I received, a really simple example of that is, and I've used it time and again, when you're interviewing and you're building a team, go for competency. Who cares about skills? You can learn skills. Can you learn skill? You, Bruce, I want to know how you function and how capable you are of learning a new skill. And if your competency shines through, I'm much more interested in bringing you onto my team. So being able to just, you know, that that whole lens of competency-based recruiting, you name it, just fantastic business training. And I'm really grateful for that. And I have now come full circle after 20 years thereafter, working in nonprofits, often overseeing portfolios with livelihood projects in them, but still never talking about soil health. Um, I found myself in the Netherlands with a young family looking at what to do. And I came across landscape restoration and discovered that in spite of my all the different social justice organizations I'd worked for all my life, I had somehow never talked about soil health. And so once the scales fell from my eyes, I was completely hooked. And I just, as I 
explained at the beginning, I see it as the most holistic solution I've ever come across to solving so many of the challenges that we face. And when I met with the Klompers, we kind of looked each other in the eyes and they shared their story. They described the journey they've had to date and Jeroen shared his vision of how we could incentivize farmers to do the right thing and actually solve the big problem for companies at the same time. So we uh, started building and we created the Soul Heroes Foundation, the Soul Heroes Company, and that's how I find myself here. Excellent. And what's the difference between this Soil Foundation, the Soil Heroes Foundation and the Soil Heroes Company? The Soil Heroes Foundation provides research, so scientific evidence that when you farm differently, it's going to improve your land and improve the crops that you're growing. So we've started with water holding capacity when you farm regeneratively you're going to change the structure of the soil in a way that you're more resilient in times of drought and that you filter better, the soils filter better during times of flood. So you have a more reliable yield crop at the end of the day. When a farmer sees that scientific proof that, ah, okay, it's not just nice blah, 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 but there's actually real evidence here that it makes a difference. We then provide the tools and the principles that one then needs to apply and very important, also provide the connection to other farmers so that you are not feeling alone or like, you know, like I say, some kind of funny, funny farmer in the midst of all these other industrial farmers. <laughs> so that's the foundation, all open source sharing knowledge. And then the Soul Heroes Company is where farmers and companies meet each other to deliver impact. So sequestering carbon building the water holding capacity, measuring that and packaging it in a way that companies can pay farmers for it. Yeah, brilliant. And what does success look like for Soil Heroes? And what's the biggest hurdle do you think you're going to face getting there? There's a, a recent discussion at the moment, putting nature on the balance sheet. And for example, Triodos Bank has recently said it wants to provide impact loans where they make their return based on impact first and finance second. And I would love to see real success is when companies first make their statement on how they have invested in nature and they have built nature as a company. And second measure of success is their profit. We're not there yet. We're not in a position at this moment to do that. I think success is also when consumers are being discerning and able to make the choices of buying products that have done good by our planet rather than cause more degradation. Again, quite an esoteric or I mean it is happening, but it's it's not happening fast enough. I think success for for Soul Heroes per se is when the companies who are now talking about make net zero, making statements, actually act on those statements. When there is money flowing to farmers that is transforming the way that they farm, that we have the evidence of their regenerative practices being employed on hectares and hectares and hectares of land. That's the starting point. So if we have companies paying farmers and it's actually happening, then we know the cycle is going the right direction. It's going up. What can listeners do differently to help you succeed? I mean, how, how do I go out and buy regenerative food or a regenerative cotton T-shirt? Because we've got in the UK, we've got the little red tractor. I'm not sure what that means anymore. Organic certified products. Is there a regenerative label or how do we find regenerative things on the 
I was going to say supermarket shelves, but maybe on the, <laughs> on the deli on the deli shelves. Well, you're kind of answering the question a little bit already yourself, exactly. Yeah, because you know we should, where possible, let's let's shop locally. I mean, I'm I work full time. I have young kids. I don't have time to go and shop in ten different places to gather my groceries. It's really difficult. So, fully acknowledging that. Nevertheless, if we can be more discerning, a really good example is a friend of mine knows exactly what I do, really admires the work. We go out to the supermarket together and goes to, ah, biological, we don't need that. Let's find the cheapest. There's a dissonance. There's no connection there in, in our actions and what our brains are telling us and what we're actually saying and doing. I've said it, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I'm a very, very strong believer in this. We have to take a step back and look at our intentions. We're never going to be able to make easily the right decisions because there isn't enough transparency at the moment. That's clear. I, I am very frustrated in thinking of what I feed my kids. How can I choose the most healthy vegetable on the rack? Because I'm not sure, actually. So then I would answer it slightly differently. If your listeners are companies, if they are leaders of companies, please, please, Put nature first. Just do it. Stop faffing about and talking about recompensing for harm that's already done. You know what would be fantastic? I really would love. I was thinking about this over the weekend because I thought, you know, I'm going to speak to Bruce on Monday. My goodness, what earth am I going to say? One thing became really clear to me is that we're having a negative dialogue worldwide. We're talking about how can we reduce our emissions instead of how can we from today, make sure that we take action today that allows us to operate in the way that we operate and get to 2030, having already today sequestered enough carbon that allows us to emit. Instead of it being backwards and negative, think forwards and positive and, and, and flip it on its head, do a kind of total 180 degree turn. And of course, that takes money, not just change, it takes radical change and it takes money. But I can tell you, it's a, I strongly believe it's a false economy not to do it because you're going to be paying a heck of a lot more in 10 years time. Look how energy prices have, r have risen already. You know, imagine what the cost, real cost to a business might be in the future if you don't take radical action now. Yeah, I love it. I love this concept of putting nature first as well. And then, you know, the emissions will take care of themselves if we do that and start to look after nature. And it's good advice for our listeners. What's coming up that you're most excited about in the, in the next sort of uh, year or two? Well, it would not be authentic of me not to say it, although it's a bit of a predictable answer. There have been massive commitments made. 20 years ago, I was running a program called Investing in Nature that was a big chunk of cash invested by HSBC. Investing in Nature. 20 years have passed and companies are yet again making big commitments and I'm thinking, hang on, what's happened in the last 20 years? I think HSBC making, taking that action all those years ago is no longer, no longer stands out. It's not unusual. And that's actually a really good sign because that means companies are starting to walk their talk. There's a heck of a long way to go. But for me, the most exciting thing is if companies actually start delivering on those commitments which in the long term, Bruce, means that you and me are going to be able to find regeneratively labeled products on the shelf. And then we know that the change, the real change has happened. Excellent. I'm also excited about those things. They're fantastic. What podcasts are you listening to at the moment that you'd like to recommend to listeners, Gina? Well, there's 
one which I can't not mention, which is investing in regenerative agriculture. It is what it says on the tin. And it's beautiful interviews with lots of leaders in this space. I recently start, I haven't finished it yet, but started listening to interviews with Ava Carlson, who's the CEO of Houdini, who's really looking at how you bring nature into business practice and quite inspiring. One I'm quite excited to listen to, but haven't had a chance yet, is Robin Wall Kimmerer on an economy of abundance. It's called Service Berry. And it's like silk running through your fingers. It's beautifully written. And it's all about coming back to your core instincts, your core gut and your intentions. So there's a few. I have I have more, but <laughs> I think that will be for now. Fantastic. And finally, it's been amazing having you on here. But before we go, we have this thing called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, where I ask guests to put something in the Hall of Fame. And then we're all going to again hang out there in the future. What would you put in the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame? If it's a thing, it would be a file of soil. It would be like the best, beautiful, most good looking soil in a glass tube that you could find. And if it's a person, I just, from my own childhood, access to understanding the beauty of nature, David Attenborough. Brilliant. Fantastic. I'm definitely going to hang out with him and some uh, lovely soil would be brilliant. Gina, it's been amazing having you on 050 and learning all about soil heroes and regenerative farming. How do listeners find you if they want to check out your website? We do have a website. It's soulheroes.com. So fairly easy to find. Perfect. And that's where all the information is. It's been brilliant having you on the show. Thank you very much. And uh, see you in the future. Thank you very much, Bruce. A real pleasure to speak with you. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.